Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. And it's from John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I... Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Let's watch the video. morning. Um, I don't know how you feel watching a video like that. Uh, Maybe for some of you, just hearing a passage like we just heard read and then seeing a video like that is quite moving. I know for me, sometimes when I come to a story that's quite familiar, I can just focus on the details. It's not until I see it just enacted through something like that that it makes me really connect with some of the emotions of it. And a couple of weeks ago, just watching that video for the first time in the run-up to Easter, I found it deeply moving to see someone like the Pope humble himself, a powerful, revered man, to wash the feet of others. Maybe you felt the same way, or maybe you just saw that and thought, I didn't really want to see feet that big on a screen. (laughs) Uh, Maybe for some of us, it just seemed very, very odd. I mean, what are we doing today talking about Jesus giving his disciples a pedicure? Like, what's what's that got to do with anything? Well, this morning, I want to kind of address that that question in a way. I want to ask, why is it that Jesus took time to wash the feet of his disciples at this meal? Why did he do that? And perhaps more importantly, why 2,000 years on do other people still do the same to this day? I want to look at this passage that we just heard read from John 13, and in a sense, I want to show you three things from it, what it tells us about Jesus, what it tells us about Peter, and what it tells us about us. Or another way to put it is to look at the themes of power, purity, and purpose. And since the holy grail of preaching is uh, threefold alliteration, that's the one we're going with, beginning with power. Meals were a powerful thing. 
in Jesus' day. They were full of symbolisms of power. Not only the people that you chose to eat with, but the way you chose to eat with them uh, communicated some kind of message about value, power, and hierarchy. If you choose to eat with someone in Jesus' world, it was a way of saying, I accept you, I welcome you, maybe even I approve of you. And so if you chose not to eat with someone, if you distance someone, uh, yourself from someone else during a mealtime, it was a way of saying, I don't approve of you. Perhaps I don't consider you clean enough or pure enough to be in my presence. The whole idea of coming to the meal table had all sorts of themes of power, status, and hierarchy tied up within them. In fact, even the way you ate a meal showed things about power, value, and hierarchy. In John chapter 13, uh, the meal seems to be uh, billed as if it is following the pattern of a typical Greco-Roman banquet. Now, actually, I had a whole load of stuff in my talk just looking at all the symbolism in it, but I realized it was too geeky even for me, so I put that uh, on the cutting room floor today. But just a couple of things. There are things about the way that you hold a meal that communicate things about what you really value, who you really value. People play particular roles within a meal. The whole layout of the room communicates a message. In a Greco-Roman banquet, often you would have the meal itself, and then afterwards you would have what they called a symposium, where there would be some kind of entertainment, or actually, quite often, someone standing an honored guest and giving a lecture on some kind of aspect of philosophy or ethics. That's actually exactly what we see in John 13 to 17. We see Jesus sharing this meal and then giving a long discourse with his followers, telling them what is going to happen, talking about ethics and how they are to live and some big, bold themes. And there are all sorts of little bits along the way, kind of transitions where they would offer a cup and there would be a treasurer's report and all sorts of things that John alludes to in this passage in order to say this is like a Greco-Roman banquet full of symbolism of power. The way a room was laid out on an event like this would communicate a message of power. I don't know what comes to mind for you when you think of The Last Supper. It's possibly something like this, Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper. Beautiful, beautiful painting. The Last Supper almost certainly looked nothing like this. Uh, There's the old uh, joke, you may have heard it. Jesus goes into a restaurant, says, I want a table for 26. The waiter says, there are only 13 of you. He said, yeah, but we all like to sit on the same side of the table. (laughs) uh, This is not what was happening at The Last Supper. Actually, if I could have the next picture... Uh, This is a horribly cheesy picture, but it's probably the closest I could find. This is probably more like what it looked like. Even this isn't quite right, because people would typically um, recline around a table. Sometimes it wasn't a table. It might have been a pile of cushions, and there might be some mats or even chairs, sort of uh, benches, if people were wealthy enough. But they would recline around this table, and actually the table, unlike this one, would usually have been U-shaped so that you can access the center from the end. And the positions around this table were important. People were leaning, reclining with one hand on the table, the other one free to eat. And they were directed towards the end of the table where the guest of honor would sit. In this case, Jesus. Everything is focused on him. He is the one they're there to hear from. And from him outwards, uh, the people closest to him would be the most important people, the people who were to be thought of as most valued. So actually, later on in the passage, it says the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining next to Jesus. Simon Peter uh, wanted to ask a question of Jesus. And so rather than calling to Jesus himself, he called to that disciple to talk to Jesus. That's the way the discourse worked. The person who was distant called to the one who was close, saying, can you ask our honor guest this question? And it says that he, <laughs> I can't see over the drum cage, I'm too short. Um, he leant back against Jesus, reclined to him and asked this question. The whole setup is communicating something of 
power. And it feels like Jesus is kind of going along with the cultural norms of power. He's just saying the same sort of things that everyone else did. I'm the powerful one here. Everything is directed around me until one moment where he just suddenly, unexpectedly turns the whole power dynamic on its head. It says this. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, foot washing was necessary in a meal in this time at this pace in the world. It was a dusty place. Your feet, as you traveled between different venues, would get covered in dust. And in a setting where you are reclining and your feet are close to someone else, it was kind of pleasant and important that you had clean feet. Otherwise, it was a horrible experience for everyone. And so if you were hosting a meal like this, as we heard last week, actually, in Hannah's sermon, you would be required to wash the feet of the people who were coming so that it was a good experience for everyone. That was expected of a host. But of course, the host wouldn't do it themselves. They would outsource it. They would give the job to someone else. This was clearly a job that no one would want to do. And it was something that they often um, outsourced to slaves or to servants. They employed people to come and wash the feet of others. The rabbis talk loads about who was and wasn't allowed to wash feet. Sometimes children may wash the feet of their parents. Sometimes a disciple might wash the feet of its teacher. Uh, Some rabbis said that actually no Jewish adult should ever wash the feet of another Jewish adult. It was too demeaning. And so they would employ people like me, non-Jews, to come to Jewish parties and wash the feet of Jewish people because they considered it too degrading an act to give to a fellow believer. Never In all of recorded history, in Greek history, Roman history, Jewish history, is there a single instance of an inferior washing, sorry, a superior washing the feet of an inferior? It was always the other way around until this moment. Jesus gets up and does the unthinkable, what no one else had ever done before. He washes the feet of his disciples. And this is incredibly shocking. Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? It's like he can't believe it. He's just incredulous. It was such a demeaning thing for Jesus to do. It goes against everything that the whole meal was communicating until that point. It seemed like Jesus had gone from the place of most power to the place of least power in one fell swoop. Or at least that's how it seems. I'm not actually sure that's quite the best way of putting it, which is silly because I know one who just put it that way. But often preachers say that in this moment, Jesus was giving up power. I don't think that's quite what was happening. I don't think he was giving up power so much as giving up privilege. And I am smashing it as a preacher today because that's a fourth P. That's impressive, that right there. Jesus is not giving up power. Actually, the whole passage is about power. It mentions power again and again. The whole passage begins by saying this. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Not just all things around this table in this moment. All things under his power. Jesus has all power. And the passage goes on, so he got up. There's a link between him knowing he has this power and choosing to do this thing. In fact, later on, after he has washed the feet of his disciples, he says, you call me teacher and Lord. And these two words, they connote power. Teacher is rabbi. It's the the term of a revered Jewish leader. The word Lord, it's kurios in the Greek. It's the word that Caesar would use of himself. And Jesus says, you call me rabbi and kurios. And he doesn't say, oh, but don't do that. I'm giving up my power. He says, no, you're right. That's who I am. (laughs) Like, Like Jesus knows he has all power. I don't think he's giving up his power here. Rather, he's giving up his privilege. He's saying, I am powerful. I don't need all the glory right now. I don't need all the honor right now. I am choosing to use my freedom and power for good. I am not elevating myself at the expense of others. Rather, I freely use my power to take on the form of a servant, to lower myself, to wash the feet of disciples. 
And in so doing, I think Jesus reveals something powerful about the person and the nature of God. I don't know what you make of God. Uh, we had a great testimony in the, uh, in the South service this morning of someone who's getting baptized this week who talked about the journey they have come on in terms of thinking go- about God. I think often we can think of God in one of two categories. And uh, the person giving the testimony today expressed something of this first category. Sometimes we can think of God as being all powerful, but really not that loving. Like he is a powerful, mighty figure, but he's preoccupied really with his own power. Maybe we think of him as being a power-hungry, dominating, forceful being, perhaps angry, perhaps distant, who wants to keep us in line by exerting his power. All powerful, but not very loving. On the opposite end of the spectrum, some people like to think of God as being like this loving, wonderful, grandfatherly figure who just approves of everything we uh, we do, but really doesn't ever exert any power. He wouldn't ever contravene our will. He wouldn't ever tell us what to do or intervene in the world. And people often have one or two, one or other of those thoughts about God. Actually, I don't think either of them are very satisfying. Because if you think of God as being powerful but not very loving, that kind of God is not very approachable, is he? It's exactly what this lady was saying this morning. That was her view of God, but thought of him as being too holy to ever come anywhere near. And if you think God is powerful but not very loving, how on earth do you ever know that you're in his good books? How on earth could you ever feel like you were good enough to approach this God? Why would you ever even want to? It would probably generate fear in you. On the other end of the spectrum, if you think that God is loving but not very powerful, that sounds good, like God's approving of everything I do. But then when you need him, he can't do anything. He won't do anything. That God is of no use to anyone whatsoever. And Jesus shows a completely different version of God in this moment. He shows a God who is loving and powerful. They're not opposites. They come together in God. He has all power, but he is not motivated by power in the sense that he wants to put others down to elevate himself. No, he is motivated by love. And he uses his power to serve and to raise up us. Jesus says this, Or John says, rather, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father, referring to his death. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We see the motivation of Jesus here is love. Actually, that word, that phrase, in the end, it's ambiguous. It could either mean to the utmost, to the greatest degree, or it could mean until the end of his life, to his death. I think it's deliberately ambiguous because it means both. Jesus showed us the full extent of the love of God by not only washing people's feet, but by laying his life down, going to the cross, which leads us to the second theme, purity. Why did he do this? It says, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Peter resists because he's so shocked at what Jesus is offering to do for him, this shame that he is bringing upon himself. But he fails to understand what the foot washing is all about. And Jesus says, you don't understand it. That's all right. You will. Something is going to happen which will make sense of this. When you see that, he's referring to the cross. When you see that, then you'll look back and go, oh, I know what the foot washing was about. It was pointing to this. Jesus is talking about the cross. If you think back to last week, Hannah Elwin preached on the chapter just preceding this, chapter 12. Brilliant, brilliant talk about that scenario where it's a similar setting. Set around a dinner table. Jesus is the honored guest having just raised Lazarus from the dead. He's there in this place of honor. And Mary comes and she brings this perfume and she takes the position of a servant. She kneels before him and she breaks out the perfume and rubs it into his feet and washes his 
feet with her hair. And it's a beautiful moment of worship. But also that perfume was perfume that was kept for preparing someone for burial. So not only is it an extravagant act, it's a way of saying, I recognize that your death is coming and I'm preparing you for it. And now in a similar scenario, Jesus takes the same themes of death and foot washing and humility and turns them on his head as he now plays the Mary role. The one who just one chapter previously had all honor and privilege bestowed upon him and said this is the right thing to do when he was even criticized by Judas. Now he turns it on his head. He takes on the form of the servant. He dresses as a servant. He humbles himself. He washes the feet of others. And I think he's saying something like this. Now the one who has had his feet prepared for burial washes the feet of others, showing that by his death many may be made clean. Jesus is adapting that metaphor to say that in this moment, as I am preparing myself for death, my death will achieve this, the washing of the feet of many, bringing purity to many. If we're all honest, I think we would all admit, maybe not publicly, maybe not happily, but all of us would admit there is stuff in our hearts that we're not proud of. All of us live with things that make us feel less than we would like to be less than we were made to be. We might have different language for it. Some people would talk about guilt or shame or brokenness or addiction, toxic impulses, sin maybe. And there are, of course, differences between those important concepts, but there's similarity as well. There is stuff about us that taints us, stuff that needs cleansing. And Jesus says, I have come to cleanse you of all of that, all of it. I've come to wash it away. Jesus doesn't paint the picture of a God who demands that we cleanse ourselves such that we are pure enough to come before him. He says God lowers himself to come and cleanse us, to wash us clean from anything that taints us. And Peter resists, and I kind of understand because often I resist, (laughs) because there's something kind of humbling about admitting that you have need about admitting that there is stuff within me that I don't like and I need someone to deal with it because I can't deal with it myself. And Peter resists, partly because of the shame, but also partly, I think, he doesn't feel like he's worthy. Jesus knows he's not worthy. And he says to him, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Peter is in danger of missing out on the thing that he needs more than anything else. Freedom, forgiveness, cleansing, love, acceptance, eternal life, all available. And Jesus is saying, unless I give it to you, where else are you going to find it? What else have you tried that works? What else brings the cleansing you need? It's here. It's freely available. Let me cleanse your feet. And hearing this, Peter swings to the other extreme. And he goes, well, all right then. Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And it seems again, Peter has misunderstood it. But you can kind of forgive him for it because Jesus isn't really helping him out here. It's quite abstract stuff. It's like, Jesus, why are you being so cryptic? Of course, Peter is not going to understand it. What on earth is he actually talking about? Well, I think we could easily make the same mistake of Peter and just push the metaphor too far, okay? Jesus is not saying that it is sufficient to only have one bath in your entire lifetime, okay? Sorry to break that to you, Lars, but Jesus wants you to have a bath. From the laughter, everyone wants you to have a bath, Lars. (laughs) Jesus is not saying it's sufficient just to have one bath in your lifetime. I think he's actually making a point based on the fact that there are differences towards cleansing. And he is trying to show the full extent of the cleansing that is available through the cross. 
In Jesus' day, you might have a bath once a day. I don't know. <laughs> Twice a day. I, I don't know. But you would travel around, having had this bath that makes you clean. You would then go about to your workplace, to the houses of others, to the temple, all over the place. And along the way, you would walk through dusty streets with your open-toed sandals, and you would get dust all over you. And you'd arrive at the venue and be like, oh, man, more dust. And of course, what you wouldn't do is then go and have a full bath, would you? You would simply find a way of having your feet washed. I, was, uh, I went to a football game a couple of years ago with my brother, uh, Arsenal Leon. We won 6-0. Um, just, it was a couple of years ago. It hasn't happened since. But there we go. We went to this football game, and it was in the summer, and it was boiling hot. It was at the Emirates Stadium um, in North London. And after the game, everyone was coming out and trying to make their way to the station. And it was so hot, everyone was in flip-flops and shorts. And, um, and we were going along. My brother, for some reason, like shuffling through the crowds, thousands of people just pouring down uh, the street. Um, my brother thought it would be really funny just to stand on the back of my flip-flop to make me stumble. And I did stumble, but as I stumbled, the leather thong on my flip-flop just snapped in two. And so here I am in this sea of thousands of people with a broken flip-flop. So I took it, and I was like trying to fix it. I like anything I could possibly find, just like, chewing gum, just nothing would fit I didn't use drink off the floor no I, I didn't I, I was just left in this scenario I was like what am I going to do I'm in North London and I've got no shoe and so I had this bit of leather and I was trying to like shuffle along the ground see if I could make it to the shoe but of course I couldn't and so I just had to resign myself to the fact I'm going to have to walk through Highbury and onto a tube and across London with no shoe. It was gross what's worse is that at football games like that you often have horse mounted police and where you have horse-mounted police, you have muck on the ground from the horses, not the police. <laughs> and so here I am, like, oh, just no shoe. I'm tempted to make my brother give me his, but he wouldn't. And so I was just trying desperately to avoid anything that looked like it was steaming, just <laughs> which in North London is a lot. So I'm just scooting around. They love that in the South. Uh, they're just like kind of desperately trying to avoid anything that will make me mucky. And I think I avoided like the big obvious stuff, but I got to the tube and still my feet were just black with grime. It was horrible. I had to call Helen. We were going on somewhere at the end and she came and met me at the station and washed my feet. It was great. Uh, no, she didn't, but she bought some spare shoes at least. <laughs> But it's like, in a weird kind of way, I think that's sort of a picture of the Christian life. Or maybe my life, at least. I don't know. When we respond to the gospel, the free gift of Jesus through his death and resurrection, we are made clean. It's like we're bathed, we're cleansed completely. It's a one-off thing. It doesn't happen again. We respond, we know freedom, forgiveness, the promise of new life. But if you're anything like me, life isn't perfect from that day on. And we navigate life and it's like being part of these crowds just desperately trying to keep away from things that make me dirty but I can't do it I get to the end of my day and I'm like man I got more dust on me again and Jesus says you don't need to bath again that's done the cross is done it's one-off work you maybe just need your feet cleansed to get rid of the dust of the day and Jesus sacrifice is sufficient for both we don't need someone else to die in our place. Jesus has done that. We just need to come to him again, repenting, asking, Lord Jesus, on the basis of that bath you have given me, I know I can trust in you to wash my feet clean. Jesus invites him to find cleansing in him. Hebrews puts it like this. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. I love this verse. One of my favorite, most encouraging verses of scripture. Just look at it. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect. Past tense. It's done. He has made perfect forever. It's irrevocable. No one can take it away. 
he has made forever those who are being made holy. Hang on, was I made holy? Yes, and you are being made holy. We are cleansed, we are bathed, we are given freedom, forgiveness, the promise of eternal life, assurance, but we still mess up if you're anything like me, and I know you are. We still get coated with the daily dust. And Jesus says, that's fine. You don't get another sacrifice. That one sacrifice continues to make you holy. I don't know where you're at with God. It may well be that you are exploring questions of faith. I hope you feel very welcome to do that here. We are not rushing you at all, but we want to make sure that you have opportunities if you would like to respond to the promise of Jesus. And if you know today there is stuff in your life you have tried to deal with many ways, stuff that is holding you back, making less, you less than you were meant to be, less than God has made you to be, come to Jesus, have it washed away. Today, you can know the promise of freedom, forgiveness, cleansing, and new life. You simply need to admit your need and trust in his death and resurrection on your behalf. And if you would like to talk or pray with someone, I'll be here at the end. The prayer team will be here at the end or talk to a friend you've come with. We would love to help you in that. But it may well be that actually you've been following Jesus for years, but you still know there's the daily dust and I can't quite shake it. Jesus' one sacrifice is sufficient for you. Again, just come to him. Don't be like Peter saying, no, you'll never wash my feet. If he doesn't wash your feet, how on earth are your feet ever going to get made clean? Come to him. There is always freedom. There is always forgiveness. This must have been so poignant for Peter. The end of the passage, he says to Jesus, I'll lay my life down for you. And Jesus goes, really? By the end of this evening, you will have denied me three times. And sure enough, by the end of the evening, Peter's feet are coated again in the dust of denial. Yet there's forgiveness. There's freedom. Jesus knew that about him. And still he offered to cleanse his feet. Jesus knows what's going on in our hearts, the things we have done, the things we are prone to do, the things we will do, and still he offers to wash our feet. Come to him. He will wash your feet today. And we'd love to pray with you if that would help. Jesus, the all-powerful one, freely takes the form of a servant, washing the feet of his disciples in a way that foreshadows his death. He uses his power to bring purity, cleansing, freedom, and forgiveness for us. And the passage continues. It says this. When he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And Jesus here having used his power to offer purity, now says, here's a new purpose for you. Here's a new way of living, a pattern that is modeled on what I have just done for you. He calls us to do the very same thing, to become servants who wash the feet of others. We saw that video of the Pope earlier. I found it really moving. He makes a practice every year, on the Thursday before Easter, to wash the feet of the marginalized. In this instance, this year, he washed the feet of 12 inmates from a prison in Italy, two of whom are serving life sentences, and he saw them weeping as he did it. In 2016, he washed the feet of refugees, including Muslims and Hindus, uh, and, and many more examples back across the years. And he's not alone in doing this. He does it annually. Many churches do it annually as a remembrance of the Easter story. Many churches do it even more regularly. It's a powerful way of embodying Jesus' message here. Now, I don't actually think that Jesus is saying he wants literally for us just to wash other people's feet. I think it includes that, but it's bigger than that. I think that can be a powerful witness, an embodiment of the sacrificial, self-giving love of Jesus. 
But I don't think he's saying just wash a couple of feet and that's fine. That's what I want from you. Actually, he doesn't say, do what I have done for you. He says, do as I have done for you. And in the same sort of way that for Peter, it wasn't really about the foot washing. The foot washing pointed to a greater sacrifice. So too, when Jesus says, be those who wash feet, he's not saying, just wash a couple of feet. That's all I'm asking of you. He's saying the foot washing points to something greater. I want you to be people who live a life that is radically humble. I want you to live a life of serving others, of laying down your lives for others. Foot washing doesn't have the same kind of cultural relevance today. I mean, feet are still gross two millennia on, um, but I think it's bigger than just washing a few feet. Jesus is saying all your life should be about pouring yourself out for others as I have done for you. Martin Luther wrote this. A Christian is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. A Christian is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. I love that quote. I think it sums up a lot of John 13 here. But Jesus, the true Lord of all, who deserved more honor and glory and worship than anyone else, didn't lord that over others. Rather, he freely chose himself, uh, chose to make himself the servant to his disciples. In the same way, when we experience the freedom and new life that comes from the gospel, it's so easy just to start lording that over others, to become holier than thou. Oh, I used to be as bad as you, but now I'm washed clean. Sorry, I wasn't looking particularly at you. But we can, we can just elevate ourselves to a new place where we just think, oh, now I'm free. I'm not subject to anyone. Jesus says, yeah, but how are you meant to use that freedom? You use it to become the servant of all. We use whatever power, freedom we have. We give up our privilege to become the servants of the world around us, to love them as Christ loved us. And we model ourselves on Christ, laying down our privilege to serve others. And I think this is something that starts here in the church. As we think about what that looked like, I think it starts here. Jesus says this, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. He's talking to a community who respond to him as Lord. And he's saying, wash one another's feet. So he's talking to the, the church at this point, the Christian community. He's saying, within this context, start washing one another's feet. He's asking us to serve one another in this room, in the church, those who call Jesus Lord. So what does this look like? Well, I think a great place to start is helping to make this a vibrant spiritual community. Jesus isn't saying, the full extent of what I want you to do is join a serving team. <laughs> That's not, not the point. But it's a great place to start. Every week in four locations around the city, we have dozens and dozens of people working to make this a vibrant spiritual community where people can encounter God. We have people moving equipment, setting out chairs, not in this venue, but in other venues, running sound and visuals, providing refreshments, leading worship, welcoming people, looking after children, serving communion, praying after the service, offering pastoral support, and far more that I probably don't even notice. And in each of these areas, people are often giving of their lives and their time and their effort and their energy in sometimes quite unglamorous ways. Why? Not just because we like to pop up and put on a show in four locations around the city. We don't have serving teams because there are people here who just really love moving boxes and making coffee in bulk. That's not like, I mean, you might love that, but that's not why we do it. Those are means to an end. We serve in the practical ways. Why? Because we are wanting to build a community here that blesses the city where families can find God and encounter God together, where people can find support, where people who feel broken can be made new, where those who have no sense of community can come here and find love and acceptance and support and care like they would never find anywhere else. 
People can come here as they are and have God change their lives. That's the kind of community we are trying to build here. And the practical serving is a means to an end. I am so grateful for the way that many of you serve here and at other services. I know people come here in the morning, off they go to serve somewhere else in the afternoon. It is incredible the way that you give. I am so grateful. You are making a huge difference in making a place where people can encounter God and have their lives changed by him. And my appeal is that if you are part of this community and you've benefited from the way others have served, why not try giving something back? Why not try becoming part of one of the serving teams? You can find out the information behind me or at the welcome point or on the website. Go to tryserving.christchurchlondon.org. Find a full array of the things that you can do in our services. Try out a couple. See if there's a place you can make a contribution. You may find that it involves a little bit of humbling yourself, doing something you don't really like to do, but that's kind of what it means to follow Jesus. And to be honest, I've known that at times where I've thought, oh, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to do those sort of little things, then actually when God has called me to do something more costly, I've not been ready to do it because I've not trained in the smaller areas. And I find that when I serve alongside others and I serve others, lots changes in here. I become more compassionate, more like Jesus. I start to notice the needs in others, those I serve and those I serve with. I start to care more about people. I start to notice their needs, their weaknesses. I think maybe I could do something about that, that thing that no one else seems to be doing anything about. Maybe I could be Jesus in that situation. And as I do it, I find that when God asks me to do more costly things, moving, giving things up, things I don't really want to do, I've already started to develop the heart of a servant. Why not begin serving here? And what I think you'll find is it won't stay in here. It will quickly ripple out into your workplace, the places where you live, into the city. You'll start to find yourself noticing the dust on the feet of others and thinking, I could be Jesus to this person right now. Rodney Stark has written a brilliant book about the rise of Christianity in the ancient world. One of the things he says is that uh, uh, various ancient historians um, note that one of the reasons why Christianity surged in the, in the early centuries throughout the ancient world was because of the epidemics that hit cities and killed many people, which sounds a little bit weird, <laughs> uh, but bear with me. He says this, that often when an epidemic hit a city and people didn't know what to do about it, those who were rich and wealthy uh, and often the unreligious would respond by moving out of the city. He cites as just one example of many, in 260 AD, um, there was a great epidemic that took the lives of many, and Dionysius of Alexandria said this, many of the irreligious, at the first onset of disease, uh, disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. Their response to the dirt, to the disease, was just to push it away from themselves and get out of there as quickly as possible. By contrast, he says this, most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. And Rodney Stark says that many historians have noticed, noted it is this self-giving impulse modeled on the life of Jesus that caused Christianity to spread like wildfire. You think it sounds a bit weird. They got close to sick people and many Christians died. Surely that would lead to the dwindling of Christianity. But no, 
People saw this and thought, I don't understand it. I have no way of explaining it. What kind of God must they be worshipping who would give them himself and then ask others to do the same? And people started to look at Jesus in a new way because of the way people laid down their lives for others. Maybe the band could come back up. My question for you is this, and it's one to ponder. What would it look like for you to live that way? In a world where foot washing isn't maybe a cultural, culturally relevant thing, in a world where there isn't necessarily epidemic sweeping through cities, what does it look like for you in your world to lay down your life for others? Modeled on the manner of the servant king. Who are the people around you whose feet God is calling you to wash? In a moment, we're going to return to worship. And I've asked the band to play and sing a song. It's a slightly old one. You may not know it. You may know it. It's called The Servant King. And it sums up a lot of this passage, a lot of the themes we've touched on today. And as they play and sing, I'd ask us just to stay seated and to use this as a moment of reflection. You may want to reflect on the words. You may want to reflect on the passage. You may want to think about what God may be whispering to you about today. As you reflect, why don't you just be aware of any stirrings you feel in your heart? Maybe you'll just find people come into mind. Maybe you'll think about ways that you could perhaps use your skills in ways that you've not thought of before. Be attentive to that. It may well be that God is whispering to people in this moment about ways in which you can live as servants as he has served you. We'll sing, we'll reflect. You can sing along if you want. But otherwise, just feel free to sit in silence and reflect. And then I'll come back and pray for us before we end. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.